Welcome to the second season of Over to Europe. This podcast is produced by the community of Civica, the European University of Social Sciences. Civica unites eight leading European higher education institutions to create the next generation European university. One of the primary goals of Civica is to connect these eight universities to promote the exchange of knowledge and resources for the European common good. In the second season, we zoom into Civica's research focus areas. For Civica, research is one of the key instruments to achieve its long-term goal of creating shared European knowledge. Thanks to the newly launched project Civica Research, the Alliance will continue to deepen its collaborations in research around these major areas. We talk to researchers and faculty members from the eight Civica partner universities to bring you cutting-edge European research in social sciences. I'm your host Aniket Narawad, a first-year Master of Public Policy student at Hertie School, Berlin. In the times of a severe crisis, our systems go through the test of resilience. The pandemic has been one of the biggest tests for our domestic and international governance system in recent times. It not only pushed the boundaries of our current system, but exposed some of the loopholes and their large-scale repercussions. With the large-scale rollout of vaccination across the world, we can cautiously hope that we are about to turn the page of the pandemic. Based on the learnings from the failures and successes of managing the pandemic so far, we can re-evaluate parts of the system that have not been very effective in the pandemic. In the 21st century, our world is more connected than it has ever been before. Our political, economic, health, and many more systems rely on each other heavily. In such highly intervened world, we need smoother and more effective international governance systems. The pandemic has shown how health risks in one country spread across the world like wildfire within a few months and shut down the whole world. In this episode, we evaluate the global cooperation system from the point of view of the recent health crisis and discuss what needs to be changed in the coming years. To discuss this, I speak to two experts: Inge Kohl, a senior fellow at the Hertie School Berlin and non-resident fellow at the Center for Global Development Washington DC. Previously, Dr. Kohl has served as director of the Human Development Report Office and the Office of Development Studies at the United Nations Development Program New York. The other expert is Stephen Roberts, a global health security scholar and fellow in global health policy at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Dr. Roberts is currently a lecturer in global health at UCL Institute for Global Health. Would you like to talk about what role WHO has played in the pandemic and has it been successful? It's obviously a very difficult question to unpack. First and foremost, in my research, what we've noticed is there's been, in many cases, a real conflation of expectations, like the WHO is expected to do during this particular pandemic. This featured very heavily in sort of the early days of the pandemic, when there was a lot of questions of response capacity. Essentially, the WHO is a technical advisor on health for its member states. So in this, I think it's continued to be successful and instrumental. For example, informing us about the pandemic and generating the evidence-based science on the nature of SARS-CoV-2. 
I think it's been instrumental and successful in providing updates on the evolution of what we know about the virus and the pandemic itself, and then highlighting key measures to reduce deaths, spread, and infection. This, again, comes back to the importance of vaccines, but also highlighting the ongoing issue of vaccine equity as an accelerator of the pandemic and, and as a collective global health risk. There are, of course, many difficulties, criticisms, and shortfalls, which I'm happy to detail or also hand over to Professor Cowell for some reflections on. My view is that the WHO was criticized unfairly. I think it has shown a good adjustment to the nature of the problem by setting up the accelerator initiative with COVAX and CEPI to put platforms at the global level for experience exchange, for research exchange that has all worked. And the criticism should really be leveled against the member states. When you look at WHO's finance, It's poor. Only a small portion of its budget comes from assessed contribution. All the rest has to be scraped together. And even though the director general has made tremendous efforts to point to the underfunding of WHO, the members have been very reluctant to come up with additional money. They have come up with additional money. But what intrigues me is that we are really treating these public goods and especially global public goods as if there were no goods that need production. We are just underfinancing. And my conclusion from the last year is we have learned very little. As you said, funding is a key issue for the intergovernmental organization, but funding from different countries also comes a lot of political power to potentially influence their decisions. Do you think, has it been working so far? Would you like to see any specific changes that then it can function fully independently to serve the people, not certain political blocks? I don't see that the WHO has particular political blocks. One thing is what sort of investigation one does in China on the origin. But as far as the functioning of WHO at the global level is concerned, there was no bias in the Gavi dealings with COVAX. I don't see interference there. I only see too little money for the big tasks. And what is especially worrisome for me is that now we only are concerned about the underfunding of vaccine purchases. Production capacity has to be expended. A lot of money has to be mobilized for that. Where are the storage facilities in Africa? There is a huge funding gap and we are just not dealing with it. In the north, like in Germany, we invest a lot of money in cushioning the ill effects of the crisis. Why not do it also outside to help countries, especially the more developed countries themselves, because the mutations of COVID travel back to the north. So I find it short-sighted, not in a public policy entrepreneurial spirit. And therefore, my assessment, we have learned very little. I would say that I agree completely with the excellent points being made so far. Talking about global health governance and talking about the visions of these intergovernmental organizations, we have to remember that these organizations are only as good and only as effective as the composite of their members. Again, focusing back on this last year with the functions of WHO and the demands that were being made of it by its member states and by larger global health community, the WHO had to do all of this nonstop and, as we've previously discussed, on a very limited budget with an enormous amount of public confusion about its role and the expectations that were placed on it to respond to the pandemic 
focusing on the impact of the member states who think about geopolitics, the realities of sovereignty, and how that impacts the, the delivery and the trust that we see in, in international organizations. We can talk about the issues with the, the program of work being threatened by the budgetary cuts of the Trump administration. We can talk about the work that was undermined by a misinformation campaign from hostile states or social media. I think the important thing to remember is none of these challenges are new. We've seen these lessons not been learned. We saw the challenges of sovereignty and geopolitics from previous outbreaks. But now I think it's really taken hold. And if anything, this should really serve as a really critical point of reflection on not only the expectations of the INGOs and organizations such as World Health Organization, but how the conduct and behavior of their member states are ultimately hampering the delivery of global health goods that they are actually demanding during this pandemic as well. It's very important to see these connections. Moving on to the next point, I wanted to talk about uh, the accountability mechanisms available when it comes to global risks, whether it is economic risks, whether it's health risks. Are there any currently available uh, mechanisms that hold each country accountable? A lot is going on in terms of monitoring, data collection, building indicators, measuring and formulating dashboards. But what good does it do? I think you should only hold someone accountable who is capable of dealing with the problem effectively. So why not look at the more powerful countries and say, what about your CO2 emissions? How come they don't go down? You promised it way back and it falls short. In order to really deal with health challenges, countries are reporting problems and outbreaks. But then what? What do you do if you don't have the health system in place? So I don't see a lot of merit in this frenzy and flurry about data generation, monitoring, reporting. We have to also ask ourselves, do we make a difference? And how do we make a difference? We should be monitoring the inputs and not only whether a change is happening, because without inputs, I believe no change on the ground will happen. On the similar lines, I would like to ask the questions, how do you think the accountability mechanism has worked in the particular case of pandemic? Have we learned something? That's an excellent question. I think it's very important to consider what we mean when we talk about available mechanisms for holding states accountable during public health emergencies and, and the ability to implement and, and to enforce this on a global scale. We've seen previously with the international health regulations, which were revised and put into place in order to increase the, the global collective monitoring and surveillance of, of new disease outbreaks post-SARS. States, according to the IHR, were legally obligated to report the outbreak of diseases to WHO within 24 hours of the emergence of a certain amount of listed diseases and any type of new diseases and pathogens. And we saw on numerous times that the issue was this was the theoretical or the normative obligation. Again, sovereignty prevailed and states were unwilling to disclose this information and to share this information with partner states and with WHO as well. This is not something new that we are seeing within the COVID-19 pandemic. We're seeing again that this is a sovereignty-based and geopolitical challenge as well. There are a number of issues which can support or impact on a state's ability to report an infectious disease outbreak. The discussion is much more complex when we talk about data sharing practices, surveillance technologies, reimbursements and support. For, but it's been incredibly difficult to implement and enforce these accountability mechanisms with all of the, the upcoming interest in this international pandemic strategy, which will, as we are told, be legally binding. 
It's a very interesting prospect in theory, but the negotiations are scheduled for November of this year. It's critical to bring 194 countries on board in this agreement to have a legally binding agreement as well. I think the details of what is considered legally binding and what the perimeters for that are will emerge and it will be very interesting in the details of the negotiations. Talking about geopolitics, vaccine distribution, uh, Professor Cole, would you like to talk about the distribution of vaccine and the role of geopolitics and how successful we have been in distributing the vaccine so far? Phrases like vaccine nationalism tell a lot about the skewed distribution of the available vaccines. In the beginning, when there was no vaccine, one heard much more talk about solidarity because then we were really hanging together and we had to put our last skirt around our nose and mouth in order not to spread up. But now that the vaccine is there, there is much less talk about solidarity and especially there is no implementation of it. Everybody missed the phrase or the opportunity to say, all of us are not safe until everybody is safe. But we don't live up to this phrase. We're just going slow on the expansion of production capacity. And that brings us then probably to the next issue of intellectual property rights and how to handle that question. Speaking of geopolitics, we see the geopolitical aspects within vaccine distribution in two very distinct ways from my perspective. The first is very much around the, the existing divide and the enormous inequities that exist between high-income countries on one hand and low- and middle-income countries on the next. And by that, I mean that the traditional patterns of infrastructure, for example, for the development of technologies and therapies, we saw there was obviously wealthy countries had the capacity to produce these new therapies. And on the other hand, they had the economic clout in order to access these. We're seeing this again in a very similar way in the context of vaccine access and vaccine equity. We see this in the obscene amount of vaccines that many high-income countries have been able to amass in a very short amount of time. How can we ever begin to kind of entertain a future of global health equity when these realities continue to persist within pandemic times, but also in ordinary non-pandemic settings as well? The second point we really see, it's been very well documented, the great power battle with the distribution of vaccines, which in many cases has happened because of the vacuum that has been created by many high-income states dominating the vaccine market and dominating the vaccine stock. And then what you see, obviously, is vaccine diplomacy. Vaccine diplomacy is an off-play of vaccine nationalism or a form of vaccine nationalism. Obviously, the proliferation and the donation of Russian and Chinese manufactured vaccines in many low- and middle-income countries as a result of not being able to access the vaccines that were produced within North America and EU and the UK as well. So what we are seeing out is increasingly winning hearts and minds by getting shots into shoulders and arms. I think kind of two really interesting areas where geopolitics, which are always existent in global health, but are very, very pronounced within this ongoing performance of vaccine distribution and questions around vaccine equity. Probably one additional comment on the geopolitical aspect of vaccine distribution. I was quite intrigued by the fact that the recent G7 summit critiqued Russia and China for having distributed vaccines and said this is vaccine diplomacy. What is wrong with vaccine diplomacy? After the G7 countries did critique Russia and China, now the G7 countries also distribute a vaccine. That is also vaccine diplomacy. If some countries do it, it's good. If other countries do it, it's something negative. And the same applies to the Belt and Road Initiative. The G7 summit said, oh, look at China, what they do with this initiative. But now we do it too in Africa. 
You see in these examples very clearly the big problem at present, the superpower rivalry, which really stifles and stalls effective multilateral cooperation in many issue areas, not only in health. The heavy responsibility lying on today's researcher and student generation. We are lacking proper constructive research that shows that the current attitude, especially of the Western industrial countries, is very short-sighted because they want to continue power politics. Why does the democracy only apply nationally? We should have better democracy internationally. Africa is constantly saying we want to have more joint agency, we want to have a more effective voice in matters that concern us. That democracy and joint decision-making is lacking. And there is realism lacking on the part of the conventional powers. They have to see that the days are gone. We are now living in these areas of interdependence where global public goods are involved. There you can't use the military, you can't pull your muscles, you have to cooperate. At present, many countries are fearing, especially the most powerful ones, about their sovereignty. I have come up with a new paradigm, the dual compatibility paradigm. We have to find ways to make international cooperation compatible with sovereignty. It should be a good deal for everybody concerned. In return, states should also commit not to just push any kind of garbage across borders, <laughs> diseases, pollution, so that the exercise of national sovereignty is globally compatible. You can easily show that this would pay, even in a relatively short period of time, and everybody was better off. But what many countries are not doing right at present is to distinguish when to compete for scarce resources or market shares and when really they have to cooperate. They say it all, that global challenges are challenges no one can deal with unilaterally, but then they try to do it unilaterally. Here comes also the phrase of the European Union. We will set the standards for green deals worldwide to protect our sovereignty. These days are over. You have to discuss it, you have jointly to decide. Otherwise, there will be storms, floods, terrorism, more this, more that, more everything, and we will dearly pay for it. Therefore, I say realism is lacking. We don't know what is really good for ourselves. If you look at even the democratic countries, as you were talking about G7, they also work towards serving the interests of their own people, of their own countries, but not the global community. How do we depoliticize some of the aspects of the global governance system so that we are able to help people in need, not just to work towards the, your own political inclinations? A thinking exercise that I often work with, with my own students or with my research partners as well, that I do think gets forgotten about and omitted within all of these discussions about the future of global health security, a life after COVID, focusing on a very understandably planetary level. The phrase that I'm always guided by is global health is ultimately local health. And I think this has been forgotten about in many cases within this pandemic and within this rush to restructure and bolster global health security. These are different thinking exercises that it's important on the basis of citizens to recognize that global health begins local. This means supporting political and social groups who have committed to a shared vision of global health for the future. So the recognition of the need that global health needs to be there. It needs to serve a purpose to be fostered in a vision of social justice of collective security on one hand and also collective risk on the other, right? On the local part of citizens, of groups, this is related to governance as well. 
We need to support governments and political groups that take this seriously, that will make commitments to future global health security that is based on key things like equity and that does entertain these big challenges and think of a way of working on these things together. Because we have seen more than once now what happens when states enact a state-centric approach to these public health emergencies. It doesn't work. We've seen this from past public health emergencies. But if you look at COVID-19 particularly, any state that was once considered successful for its particular response from the beginning of the pandemic in March 2020 until now has fallen. It's very hard to locate a state and say, this state went at it alone and they have a successful sterling record on this. It's recognizing on one hand that global health begins locally and global health is local health. And then I'm very inspired by education and future generations and how their perspectives and their way of working might be different than the ways we've been doing things up until now. I think it's very key to promote global health education, this awareness of global health and the challenges and the importance of it, to continue to reflect on the many disastrous lessons that we've had to learn with COVID-19 in order to challenge future generations to think about global health in collective terms when it comes to health challenges. I cannot agree with that fully because global health starts globally, not locally. If there is tight intellectual property rights protection, you never can afford the medicines you need. The sooner the better find a way of understanding that it is in the interest of dynamic efficiency and growth and sustainability that we know when to relax the property rights or do differential patenting. So that is a local aspect. How can health start locally when you live in South Africa with thousands of people you share the water pipe? It's putting a heavy burden on countries that are poor when you say it starts locally. There is a lot one can facilitate at the global level. And why would a local government make up for the shortcomings at the global level? I am absolutely an investor. You need money for these global public goods. I cannot be convinced that it comes out of good intentions. I think it's an excellent point. We can recognize we need both. I very much agree with the points you're making, especially when it comes to the status and the undue burden that's placed on low-income countries as a result of this. One really important point in asserting that global health is local health, particularly if we think about education and enlightenment of future generations, I think is very much situated within high-income countries as well. Some of the worst-performing, hardest-hit countries in this pandemic were high-income countries. And I believe for many times there was a, I don't know if you want to think of it as an omission of thought or an oversight, that pandemics don't happen here. This was something that is very foreign, that happens in low-income countries. And what we've seen in the context of this outbreak is global health is local. Pandemics do happen here as well. As you said, we can recognize both the local and the global elements of global health and, and also how they manifest in very distinct contextualized ways as well. How do we depoliticize issues regarding health so that we have strong global institutions that can help us to protect the global community? First of all, I think it's very embarrassing for the academic community to say, COVID has opened my eyes to inequality and to health. We have seen this since ages. <laughs> Then my biggest point that I will never get tired of repeating is global public goods are not development issue. Development also comes in, but recognize global public goods as goods to be produced, whether it's financial stability, cybersecurity, health challenges of different types. 
and have someone in charge, a platform manager, a network to see what inputs are required. There is no real good incentive policy at the global level that we go to countries and say, here, do a little bit more, do it faster, do it more effectively. The old business model of country-focused operations and decision-making have so far really struggled against recognizing GPGs as a new type of policy area that cuts across foreign domestic divide, is multi-sectoral and highly complex. We need these managers of different global public goods in national governments and at the international level. Countries are concerned about their sovereignty in a short-term perspective. They would be better off if they were to more effectively cooperate. Then they wouldn't lose sovereignty to the weather or the health challenges, but enjoy much more policy-making space. So we need actually good institutional change at the global and national level up to the local level. We have to recognize that GPGs are a new type of issues. What are some of the things we have learned from the COVID crisis in terms of global cooperation? That's a very good question. And I wonder, are we feeling optimistic or pessimistic? I think there is an enormous body of work that needs to be addressed about what went wrong and what needs to be done. First of all, things that went wrong were really daunting issues that have standed and have been accelerated and accentuated with this pandemic. One of the challenges that we have spoken about is this new reality of epidemic and pandemic risks in high income countries. And this has really driven home. And what will happen with this going forward after COVID with the Additional short-sightedness of, of high-income governments as well. Because pandemic preparedness was always an item on the agenda prior to COVID. It was theoretically on paper. States were well prepared for this. The Global Health Security Index had listed the United States and the United Kingdom as amongst the most prepared countries for a pandemic. And it simply did not hold true when the actual pandemic arrived. So one of the challenges is thinking about how high income states will now navigate this reality that they actually are at risk, as much at risk as the rest of the world to emerging infectious diseases and pandemic and epidemic threats. And that some reflection and learning is actually taken from that. We have seen the enormous inequities in global health, but I think really coming down to life-saving therapeutics and technologies. And we can talk about the case of vaccines and COVID-19 vaccines as well, and, and the traditional knee-jerk reaction of high-income states to only intervene when it becomes inexcusable or when the threat threatens to spread further. This is about the emergence of variants, about the really dramatic situation in India that was very prominent across the world, and it became sort of indefensible. But not only access to these therapies and these technologies during pandemics, but making sure that there is equal access in non-pandemic times as well that it doesn't need to get to this stage before we start making donations of vaccines. Another area that it's been really troubling as well, a very complex issue, which I don't necessarily think there is a single straightforward answer for, is the crowding out of expertise within this pandemic. We have seen the rise of digital misinformation, the jailing of medical practitioners, of whistleblowers. We've seen medical and research communities come under attack and be openly questioned for their evidence-based approaches. And again, this comes from the rise of social media, from populist governments, from enabled communities in all parts of the world real challenge going forward in this digital era is also the safeguarding of evidence and scientific and research and medical communities that can lead us out of public health emergencies. 
Can I compliment this? I would be all for that. But we have to do the further research for evidence and the sharing of information with a certain frame for your audience. Should we not ask in economics courses at the university why there is no economics textbook on global public goods? You open even Joe Stieglitz's textbook on public economics and it says on page three, I assume a single closed economy. Now, Professor Stieglitz, where is that economy? Are the assumptions that you make not too much? You can make such a difference in the world and in your own life. Ask this question. Think yourself. There are interesting bits and pieces that could be assembled to form such a theory, but it doesn't exist. Therefore, we come with old-fashioned ideas and think that we just assemble and do a little bit more, but with what theoretical framework in our mind? The big difference in all the global challenge areas that could be made is a good textbook on global public economics. Just to ask the last and final question of Sivika now, how do you think researchers like Sivika who work in eight different universities across different states can help build more policy initiatives that can support a global corporation? Civica should focus on these ongoing research projects in the Commission and offer concrete advice on topics that you worry about because you have many more years to live and you want to live in a peaceful and sustainable world. The second thing is not to think European. Europe is in the world. You cannot just put America first. You cannot put Europe first. So how can we, in a peaceful, democratic, partnership type of way, communicate and cooperate with the rest of the world? Dr. Roberts, would you like to add anything to that? From the angle of health, how the different states in EU and the researchers can work together to come up with better policy initiatives for the future? Well, I think the important crux was really unpacked brilliantly by Professor Powell. It's also important to recognize the current positionality in which I find myself in as a researcher at a British university in a post-Brexit world. So I'm very happy with the contributions brought forward by Professor Cowell on this. And again, in the same way that Europe is part of the world, we in the United Kingdom are also part of the world as well. So developing these policy interventions to these very complex problems within global health requires large network thinking, whether that is beyond the state, whether that is beyond a particular regional bloc. One addition specifically on health. I can tell you very well what the National Centers for Disease Control in the U.S. are doing. I also know what the African Center for Disease Control is doing, but I have no idea what the European one is doing. What struck me is that we have now this COVID problem for more than a year, and I don't read in the newspapers anything that the European Health Center has contributed or is warning about. So I think... The center probably also deserves more funding so that they could do more work and come up with more independent and provocative research that is fit news, fit to print. That would be another idea and a place to look for future work. These were Dr. Cowell and Dr. Roberts, who discussed the current state of global cooperation from the point of view of the recent pandemic. Both experts have pitched in from their area of expertise and given us a holistic picture of current scenario while suggesting some changes to be done in the coming times. 
second season of Over to Europe is produced by me, Aniket Narawar, and edited by Ricardo Colella, Savika Associate at Hutti School, with the help of Savika Community. Music in this episode was created by Kevin McLeod. This podcast is funded by the German Academic Exchange Service. Subscribe and learn more at www.savika.eu/slash Over to Europe. Stay tuned for our next episode.